Support for this podcast comes to you from Darktrace. Cyber attackers are masters of disguise, and whether it's a sophisticated email attack, compromised cloud system, or even vulnerable IoT, Darktrace's AI can distinguish between legitimate activity and an emerging cyber threat, and fight back within seconds. This is MIT Technology Review. It was not uncommon to be locked out of our hotel room or to have a key not work and him have to go down to the front desk and handle it. And it was not uncommon to pay a bill at a restaurant and then have the check come back. We're going to call this woman Miriam to protect her privacy. She was 21 when she met the man she would marry and within a few short years turn her life and her financial position upside down. But he always had a reason and it was always someone else's fault. When they first met, Miriam was working two jobs. She was writing budgets on a whiteboard, and she was making a dent in her student debt. Her credit was clean. He took me out to dinner, and he took me on little trips, you know, two or three night vacation deals to the beach or, you know, local stuff. Um, And he always paid for everything, and I just thought that was so fun. And then he started asking if he could use my empty credit cards for his one of his um, businesses and he would charge to the full amount about 5000 and then pay it off within i mean 2 or 3 days every time and he just called it flipping that happened for a while and during that that just became a normal thing and so i kind of stopped paying attention to it until one day her entire world came crashing down I had, let's see, a six-year-old, a two-year-old, and a four-year-old. And it's Halloween morning, and we're in the the dining room getting ready to take her to preschool. And um, the FBI came and arrested my husband. And, like, it's just like the movies. You know, they go through all your stuff, and they send a bunch of men with muddy boots and guns into your house. A federal judge convicted her husband of committing a quarter million dollars of wire fraud. And Miriam discovered tens of thousands of dollars of debt in her name. And she was left to pick up the pieces and the finances. I mean, I, my, my credit score was below 500 at one point. I mean, it just plummeted. And that takes a long time to dig out of. But I have learned that it's sort of a little by little thing, which I had to educate myself on. I mean, since this whole debacle here, um, I've never missed anything. It's like more important to me than most things is <laughs> keeping my credit score golden. <laughs> She's a survivor of what's known as coerced debt. It's a form of economic abuse, usually by a partner or family member. There's no physical wounds, right? And there's, this isn't something you can just like call the police on somebody. And and also it's not usually a hostile situation. It's usually pretty, it's a calm conversation where he works his way in and then gets what he wants. Economic abuse isn't new. But like identity theft, it's become a whole lot easier in a digital world of online forms and automated decisions. I know what an algorithm is. I get that. But like, what do you mean my credit algorithm? She got back on her feet, but many don't. And as algorithms continue to take over our financial credit system, some argue this could get a lot worse. We have a system that makes people who are experiencing hardship out of their control look like deadbeats which in turn impacts their ability to gain the opportunities necessary to escape poverty and gain economic stability. But others argue the right credit scoring algorithms could be the gateway to a better future, where biases can be eradicated and the system made fairer. 
So from my perspective, credit equals opportunity. It's really important as a society that we get that right. We believe there can be a 2.0 version of that leveraging machine learning. I'm Jennifer Strong, and in this second of a series on automation and our wallets, we explore just how much the machines that determine our creditworthiness have come to affect far more than our financial lives. Hmm. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. It used to be when someone wanted a loan, they formed relationships with people at a bank or credit union who made decisions about how safe or risky that investment seemed. Like this scene from the 1940s Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, where the film's main character decides to loan his own money to customers to keep his business afloat after an attempted run on the bank. I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over until the bank reopens. I'll take $242. There you are. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. These days, banks make loans without ever meeting many of their customers. Often, these decisions are automated based on data from a credit report which tracks things like credit card balances, car loans, student debts, and includes a mix of other personal data. In the 1950s, the industry wanted a way to standardize these reports. So data scientists figured out a way to take that information, run it through a computer model, and spit out a number. That's your credit score. And it's not just banks who use them to make decisions. Depending on where you live, all sorts of groups refer to this number, including landlords, insurance companies, even employers. Consumers are not the customers for credit bureaus. We are, or our data is, the commodity. We're not the customers, we're the chicken. Okay, we were the thing that gets sold. Chi-Chi Wu is a consumer advocate and attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. And so as a result, the incentives in this market are kind of messed up. The incentives are to serve the needs of creditors and other users of reports, and not consumers. When it comes to credit reports, there are three keepers of the keys, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. But these reports are far from comprehensive, and they can be inaccurate. There are unacceptably high levels of errors in credit reports. Now, the data from the definitive study by the Federal Trade Commission found that one in five consumers had a verified error on their credit report. And one in 20, or 5%, had an error so serious, it would cause them to be denied for credit, or they would have to pay more. Complaints to the federal government about these reports have exploded in recent years. And last year, during the pandemic, complaints about errors doubled. These make up more than half of all complaints filed with the CFPB, or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau of the U.S. government. But Wu believes even without any errors, the way credit scores are used is a problem. So the problem is employers, landlords, they they start looking at credit reports and credit scores as some sort of reflection of a person's underlying responsibility, their value as a person, their character. And that's just completely wrong. What we see is people end up with negative information on their credit report because something bad has happened to them. So people who've lost their jobs, who've gotten sick, they can't pay their bills, 
And this pandemic is the perfect illustration of that. And you can really see this in the racial disparities in credit scoring. The credit scores for Black communities is much lower than for white communities. And for Latinx communities, it's somewhere in between. And it has nothing to do with character. It has everything to do with inequality. And as the industry replaces older credit scoring methods with machine learning, she worries this could entrench the problem. And if left unchecked, if there is no intentional control for this, if we are not wary of this, the same thing will happen to those algorithms that happen to credit scoring, which will be they will impede the progress of the historically marginalized communities. She especially worries about companies who promise their credit scoring algorithms are more fair because they use alternative data, data that's supposedly less prone to racial bias. Like your cell phone bill or your rent to the more funky, fringy, big data, what's in your social media feed. For the first type of alternative data that is sort of conventional or financial, my mantra has been the devil's in the detail. Some of that data looks promising. Other types of that data can be very risky. So that's my concern about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Not that we should never use them. You, you, just, you have to use them right. You have to use them with intentionality. They could be the solution if they're told one of your goals is to minimize disparities for marginalized groups. Your goal is to be as predictive or more predictive with less disparities. Congress is considering restricting employers' use of credit reports, and some states have moved to ban them in setting insurance rates or access to affordable housing. But awareness of what's going on is also an issue. There are a lot of credit reporting harms that are impacting people without their knowledge. And if you don't know that you've been harmed, you can't seek assistance or remedies. Michelle Gilman is a clinical law professor at the University of Baltimore. I wasn't taught about algorithmic decision-making in law school, and most law students still aren't. And they can be very intimidated by the thought of having to challenge an algorithm. She's not sure when she first noticed that algorithms were making decisions for her clients. But one case stands out, of an elderly and disabled client whose home health care hours under the Medicaid program were drastically cut, even though the client was getting sicker. And it wasn't until we were before an administrative law judge in a contested hearing that it became clear the cut in hours was due to an algorithm. And yet the witness for the state, who was a nurse, couldn't explain anything about the algorithm. She just kept repeating over and over that it was internationally and statistically validated. But she couldn't tell us how it worked, what data was fed into it, what factors it weighed, how the factors were weighed. And so my student attorney looks at me and we're looking at each other thinking, how do we cross-examine an algorithm? She connected with other lawyers around the country who were experiencing the same thing. And she realized the problem was far bigger. And when it comes to algorithms, they are operating across almost every aspect of our clients' lives. And credit reporting algorithms are the most pervasive. Her firm sees victims who get saddled with unexpected debt, sometimes due to hardship, other times from medical bills or because of identity theft, where someone else takes out loans in your name. But the impact is the same. It weighs down credit scores, and even when the debt is cleared, it can have long-term effects. 
as a good consumer lawyer, we need to know that sometimes just resolving the actual litigation in front of you isn't enough. You have to also go out and clean up the ripple effects of these algorithmic systems. A lot of poverty lawyers share the same biases that the general population does in terms of seeing a computer-generated outcome and thinking it's neutral, it's objective, it's correct, it's somehow magic, it's like a calculator. And none of those assumptions are true, but we need the training and the resources to understand how these systems operate, and then we need as a community to develop better tools so that we can interrogate those systems, so that we can challenge these systems. After the break, we look at the effort to automate fairness in credit reporting. Support for this podcast comes from Darktrace. Every three seconds, Darktrace fights back against a cyber threat using cyber AI. From stealthy and silent attacks and insider threats to hacked smart devices or industrial networks, Darktrace detects and responds to emerging attacks in real time. And when the threat unfolds in seconds, like a ransomware attack, cyber AI takes the action that a human doesn't have time to make, buying back critical time and allowing business to continue as normal. Learn more at darktrace.com. AI helps in two ways. It's more data and better math. And so if you think of limitations on current math, you know, they can pull in a couple dozen variables. And if I tried to describe you, Jennifer, with two dozen variables, you know, I could probably get to a fairly good description. But imagine if I could pull in more data and I was describing you with 300 to 1,000 variables. That signal and resolution results in a far more accurate prediction of your creditworthiness as a borrower. Mike DeVere is the CEO of Zest AI. It's one of several companies seeking to add transparency to the credit and loan approval process. With software designed to account for some of the current issues with credit scores, including racial, gender, and other potential bias. To understand how it works, we need a little context. In the U.S., it's illegal for lenders, other than mortgage lenders, to gather data on race. This was originally meant to prevent discrimination. But a person's race has a strong correlation with their name, where they live, where they went to school, and how much they're paid. This means even without race data, a machine learning algorithm can learn to discriminate anyway, simply because it's baked in. So lenders try to check for this and weed out the discrimination in their lending models. The only problem? To verify how you're doing, you kind of need to know the borrower's race. Without that, lenders are forced to make an educated guess. So the accepted approach is an acronym BISG, and it basically uses two variables, your zip code and your last name. And so my name's Mike DeVere. In the part of California I'm from, with a name like that, I would come out as Hispanic or Latinx, but yet I'm Irish. In other words, the industry standard for how to do this is often flat out wrong. So his company takes a different approach. We believe there can be a 2.0 version of that leveraging machine learning. Rather than predict race on only two variables, it uses many more, like the person's first and middle names and other geographic data like the census tract or their school board district. He says in a recent test in Florida, this method outperformed the standard model by 60 percent. 
Why does that matter? That matters because it's your yardstick to how you're doing. Then he takes an approach called adversarial debiasing. The basic idea is this. The company starts with one machine learning model that's trained to predict how risky a given borrower is. Let's say it has 300 to 500 data points to assign risk for an individual. It then has a second machine learning model that tries to guess the race of that borrower based on the findings of the first one. If the predictions of the second model match the outputs of the race predictor, he says it means the system is encoding bias and it should be adjusted by tweaking how much it weighs each of the data points. So those 300 to 500 signals, we can tune up or tune down if it becomes a proxy for race. And so what you end up with is not only a performant model that delivers good economics, but at the same time, you have a model that is nearly colorblind in that process. He says this has led to more inclusive lending practices. We work with one of the largest credit unions in the U.S. out of Florida, And so what that means for a credit union is more yeses for more of their members. But what they were really excited about is it was a 26% increase in approval for women, 25% increase in approval for members of color. While it's encouraging, anyone claiming to have a fix for decades of harm caused by algorithmic decision-making will have a lot to overcome to win people's trust. It's a task made even harder when the proposed fix to a bad algorithm is another algorithm. The Treasury Department recently issued guidance highlighting the use of AI credit underwriting as a key risk for banking, warning of the costs that come with their opaque nature and adding a note that, quote, bank management should be able to explain and defend underwriting and modeling decisions, which, even with the most transparent tools, still feels like a tall order. And without modern regulation, it's also unclear just who monitors these credit scoring monitors and who decides whether things like phone data or information from social media are fair play, especially while the end results continue to be used for non-credit purposes like employment or insurance. This episode was produced by me, Karen Howe, Emma Silicons, and Anthony Green. We're edited by Michael Riley. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.